When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Vade. You'll be hearing from John Plotz and our excellent co-hosts over the course of the season. As our listeners know, Novel Dialogue brings novelists and literary critics together to talk about novels from every angle, how we read, write, publish, and remember them. And today, I have the pleasure of being in the virtual studio with Shola von Reinhold and Ben Bateman. Shola is the author of The Much Lauded Lote, which I like to think of as a novel that brings decadence into and out of the archive. It entangles blackness, queerness, and the legacy of modernism in intoxicating ways. And I can't think of a better critic to engage those themes than Ben Bateman, who is the author of The Modernist Art of Queer Survival and is currently at work on a book about the concept of queer disappearance. Ben is also a lecturer in English at the University of Edinburgh and the head judge of the James Tate Black Prize, which, by the way, won in 2020. So welcome, Shola and Ben. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, Ben, I am going to pass the mic to you, and I can't wait to hear this novel come alive as critic and author start their dialogue. Thanks, RT. And it is a, a fantastic novel, and it's my pleasure to be talking to uh, Shola today. And I want to begin by asking uh, a question that I think many people want to ask of some of their favorite writers, and that is, Shola, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer, and how did you get your start writing fiction? I think from, like, I think like a lot of writers actually, uh, quite young, like, must have been maybe eight when I remember writing, um, like trying to, trying to write a novel and then sending, it must've been like 20 pages long. And I remember send, vividly sending it to uh, agents and publishers, um, which is like a really annoying thing for an eight year old to be doing. Um, <laughs> I think I thought I thought I was really um, precocious when I was eight, but I was really just like uh, very good at performing precociousness as seen on TV. That's great. And I, I think that, um, you know, because one has to take that leap to deciding, you know, I want to be a writer and it's a conceptual leap. It's also a leap of of courage, as you say, and maybe one needs kind of the courage of someone very young to be able to do that. Uh, I also want to ask you, um, perhaps slightly oddly, but it is my pleasure to be interviewing you today. 
But because we're thinking about how you came to be a writer and who inspired you, I wanted to ask if you were in my position and you could interview any novelist, living or dead, who would it be and what would you ask them? Um, so at the moment, partly because I'm kind of working on something about him, uh, someone that also features in Lout uh, would be Richard Bruce Nugent, um, which for those who don't know, Nugent was a, an artist and a writer who was right at the epicenter of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and he was also kind of on the fringes of it, at least retrospectively or historically. And he was at odds with it, just like he was almost at odds with every milieu he found himself throughout his life. Um, his no novels never got published. Um, these books were written mostly in the 20s and 30s. Um, and they're full of like Harlem Renaissance uh, parties, super queer, lots of cruising and sort of boozing and high camp badinage all the way through. Um, and I don't know what I'd ask him. I'd probably just ask him for like, more explicit details about all of his friends and lovers. Like, was he really dating his way through the ranks of the New York and Chicago um, mobsters and crime bosses and playing them against each other, um, for example? <laughs> and it also, oh yeah, I also like want, I would love to know about his exploits in Europe. Um, so for example, he auditioned, um, I think in the 20s, maybe the 30s, I uh, can't remember now, he auditioned for a part in Porgy, for Porgy the Musical, as a sort of prank. Um, he went with his friends and then a bunch of them got the part. So they were then consequently sort of shuttled around Europe and maybe elsewhere in the world and sort of in these planes um, and just had, a, sounded like they had a great time um, having all these private parties. And then he met a lot of figures in the UK including people like like maybe E.M. Foster. There's a reference in a book called um, When Harlem Was in Vogue, which mentions Nugent on his way to the country um, with E.M. Foster um, and met loads of other Bloomsbury group figures. And I'm really interested. So yeah, I would, I would definitely ask him about all of that because I'm interested in the influences of black artists and uh, luminaries of that period on literary modernism, which has been historically presented as even an even whiter domain than other sort of elite enclaves, um, especially with reference to, to UK modernism, Bloomsbury modernism, um, but is in fact foundationally, constitutionally black. And Nugent was very much part of all of that. Um, and all of those, I'm like so fascinated by all of these sort of English dandies he would have met and he would have put to shame, I think, because <laughs> he was just so much more salacious and vicious than they were. And I'm always reminded of that. When I think of Nugent, I'm, I'm always reminded of that um, Sidney Hartman, Hartman phrase, which is like, um, I'm going to get it wrong now. Like the, get the, the, the flapper was a pale imitation of the ghetto girl. Um, I know, and Hartman also used this phrase, the ascetical Negro. And I always think that, you know, Nugent kind of constitutes this idea also that the the European or just the just the white dandy, the white modernist dandy was a sort of dive to me for the, the glamour of the black East Sea figures like Nugent and all of his predecessors. Shola, in listening to you talk, I mean, one of the things I find so fascinating about your style, your approach, is that you um, your writing is so embedded in your own research. 
I mean, you're talking about a modernist figure here, uh, Richard Bruce Nugent, thinking about the artistic circles that Nugent was circulating in. How much of the writing process for you is research? Yeah, I'd say about 50%. Um, when I, a, a good few years ago, it was, there was little to no research. <laughs> but yeah, now, now 50%, even with the stuff I'm working on at the moment, which is way less, uh, sort of referential, it's, it's way less, it way less comes out of a historical period, I suppose, but there's still, there's still like, it still passes in and out of, you know, the research passes in and out of the writing. How often do you find that your research takes you into places where you felt, had this not been an archive of Black life, answers would have been available here and now I'm coming up against opacities or I'm coming up against what feels like an institutional failure to have just preserved. At the time of writing late, for example, that maybe that wasn't so much of an issue in that, or it was an issue. It was just so present that it didn't feel like coming up against it. It was just the, 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 the sort of soup in which, mm -hmm. <laughs> which like was swimming, which we, was, we were all swimming, I guess, like making, Sort of trying to make this work, um, and and now it's become it is a real issue. Like I'm working on a book which is about black modernist figures in Britain, and there's so many, so many voids, so many archival voids that are really, really tricky to deal with in so many ways. You strike me as an author that is engaged with with theory in various ways. Um, do you think that would be a, a sort of fair characterization of, of, of Lope? Yeah, against my own volition. <laughs> Say more about that because you have mentioned your interest in the salacious and the gossipy side of these worlds because there's obviously something substantial to it that maybe we haven't regarded, but theory, has a kind of cultural capital associated with it that those other terms maybe don't like gossip. And Lot does bring both together in very kind of unexpected ways. I don't really want to write about theory, but it just keeps coming, it just keeps coming up again and again, and like it's inescapable um, in like various ways. And there is like a I guess, I was gonna say, well, there is there is like a there is an answer to your question about this this relation between uh, you know sort of like in quotes minor forms of knowledge and information holding which like really 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 intrigues me a lot of my work at the moment is about uh, ornament and and pattern and ornamentality is like this other red this other this other register of, that holds and deposits information and other ways of or just various other ways of being. Um, so there's like something going on there, which I can't really articulate. But yeah, I've, I don't know, I've also just been thinking about how, I'm also a little bit wary sometimes of talking about gossip now, because I feel like it's going to become like the new sort of self-care, like <laughs> workshops on it, a whole industry on it. Like it's it's really important that people recognize this this like really complicated, fascinating, interesting, um, history and practice. Um, but yeah, I also get a little bit scared talking about it at the moment.
sort of in relation to that and as well as to some themes in Lote sort of within queer theory, um, uh, ben Benji Kayan's most recent book, uh, the, the Book of Minor Perverts, uh, where he's looking at various kinds of queer sexualities and gender identities that didn't that didn't quite survive into the consolidation of uh, queer identity in the mid to late 20th century, right? So we have our received categories of homosexuality, heterosexuality, and so on, but uh, the book traces these, these more minor uh, sexualities and gender identities that, that, that exist sort of fleetingly or, 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 or barely in the archive, right? And, 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 and confronts the question of how do you bring those out, right? Uh, and and that it, it sort of leads me to my next question, uh, Shola, because Lote is so invested in modernism as a category, and you you've talked about Richard Bruce Nugent already. You've also mentioned E.M. E. Forster, right? A more kind of canonical figure within modernism, and one of the things that Lote explores so lusciously, if I could put it that way, is the position of, of decadence within modernism and within late 19th and early 20th century writing. And I wanted to ask, you know, just how influenced are you by modernism and the literature of that time? And, and, and what rivets your imagination to it? What is, what is that attachment to modernism and to that period that you've mentioned already of the 1920s and the 1930s? Um, I love the sound of that book, by the way. Please uh, send the title of it to me. Um, I think, well, yeah, it was super formative to my to like my actual experience of of reading in the first place. Like Wolf and and Foster um, really populated my imagination when I was like, I don't know how old, like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, um, and. So it's, and therefore it's always been kind of really, really romantic to me, the modernist period, the interwar modernist period, I should say, in spite of so much to the contrary, there's so much, so much that was deeply unromantic about that time in the UK, for example. Um, and that, like that romance um, sort of grew increasingly fraught for me, um, especially when I was starting to write around modernism and it was, it was becoming more and more of like a, it was sort of penetrating the substance of my <laughs> everyday life <laughs> more. Um, and, and, and I guess in turn that, like both that romance and fraughtness tended another kind of fascination in relation to modernism. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it was something, I don't know if it's something particular about the way the period was being sort of documented formally sort of yeah formally at the time or otherwise um or if it was simply because the period that the period came to me at the, at the very age that um sort of anything becomes highly formative um but yeah all those all those sort of modernist ghosts are really easy to bring up in my head with the sort of lightest touch so I inevitably come back to them even again even when I try not to um and sort of, yeah, each time finding new voids and, and aporia keep presenting themselves to me. I thought it was done with interwar literary modernism with Lot, but there's so many figures that keep coming up again or like new, or, or new, new strange encounters, um, sort of archival encounters, I guess, um, that, that pulls me back. 
Yeah, and it's, it's also something that pulls your readers in, I think, or at least this reader, uh, I will say. But it also makes me think that, um, you know, you, you've just used the word figures a couple of times, and, and we've talked about research and the way that you've studied modernism in the interwar period, and the way that these literary figures kind of impress themselves upon you. Um, and, and, and there is this strong archival component to the work that you're doing. I, I was also wanting to know, though, to what extent modernism remains a kind of inspiration to you at the level of form, right? So you're, you know, Lote very much um, uh, sizes up, I think, in many ways, uh, the limits of canonical modernism, right, in terms of who gets excluded, what voices don't we hear, and so on. But there seems to be something about the style of modernism that remains available to you or interesting to you and then gets reflected in the experiment that is load. Uh, do, do you think so? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's, yeah, that's, and that is a deep part of the kind of like archival questions that are going, I don't know if it would say archival questions, but the, the, there's a deep part of like the, the interaction with sort of dead figures and dead ideas that like Lote is woven out of, which informs the form. When you go back and look at these figures or try or bring them to bring them to to light, I kind of hate that expression, bring them to light. Um, when they that maybe hasn't happened for a long time or ever happened, um, then then yes, certainly like a the kind of formal a formal contiguity then becomes possible, I think, if that makes sense, um, because all of these kind of truncated, singed away, cut off substances and ghosts and and lives are, are back again. Though is interested in, um, you know, you mentioned like fantasy ecler decadence, uh, for example, though it's interested in the, the continuity, the contiguity between, between, yeah, the fant fantasy ecler purpleness and the supposedly sort of muscular, super white, bleached modernist mode and then you have all these people like Virginia Woolf and in between those who clearly present sort of um like so many so many contradictions of that and then you have someone like Richard Bruce Bruce Nugent who really really presents <laughs> contradictions of all of that as well I, I loved your expression there of the muscular modernism and and, and the idea that you are recovering in many ways or we might think of your character, Matilda Inlode, as recovering versions of modernism that perhaps aren't so muscular. And it, and it leads me to ask you along those lines of recovery. Um, uh, I, I see Lote as being uh, a recovery of romance, and you've spoken of your own kind of romance with modernism, um, but also a romance of recovery in, in certain respects as well, right? Where the drama of this story of Lote is Matilda trying to learn more about this archive that is frustratingly unavailable to Matilda at, at, at certain moments. And I just wonder how you, in terms of your own relationship to modernism, let's say vis-a-vis -vis Matilda's relationship to it, what, what all are you wanting to recover? And yeah, I find that I find the idea of the romance of recovery, it's a re yeah, just a really beautiful, beautiful um, way of thinking about about it. Um, 
in some ways I find the idea of the book itself as trying to do something um, kind of slightly jarring or at odds with like my, my actual experience writing with it um, because it didn't go about it in a in sort of any sort of utilitarian way or you know, any sort of A to B process um, of trying to make this or to make that happen. Um, and every time I try to describe it, almost, almost any time I try to describe it as anything beyond this kind of like a logical, magical uh, process, I'm being a little bit dishonest just for the sake of, of easiness, which I do a lot in when talking about it. Um, but there is, I guess, you know, thinking about thinking about recovery that like definitely yes there was a void that that void that we've touched on in British literary modernism um that I wanted to not so much as maybe not so much as fill but as as trace or describe um so you know the fact that I couldn't find a black British woman poet or novelist between the wars working in the so-called high modernist tradition um was something that was something to do with it um, initially, because um, obviously, contrary to so many depictions of British history, there were numerous Black women artists working and and living here before the Windrush. Um, a point which I think is now much more understood than five years ago, or ten years ago, or even a few years ago when it was when it was writing low. Like a lot of like this wasn't such available information, um, and. Um, and yeah, and it seemed to me that like, why wouldn't she, this poet, had, who's had, you know, in the book Hermia, uh, be deeply inculcated in romance and frivolity and beauty and ornamentality um, and so on. Um, I said the modernism always had that kind of romantic decadent streak to it, in spite of retro retrospective attempts to periodize it as as that muscular new mode um doing away for all the decay and the dust and the mold of the fin de siècle um and and you know and also let's face it oscar wilde and walter pater and all of that kind of um that that suggests um you know the deep that deep modernist sphere of faggotry um that was going on even whilst like it was so deeply present I too have been thinking so much about this in light of the centenary of Ulysses. I'm teaching the novel this semester and thinking about it, reading it after, you know, the upheavals of the last decade. And you, you, you know, I, I can't help but notice Cranley so much um, this time around this friend who seemed to have some sub subterranean attraction between young Stephen and, and, and Cranley. And then also, trying to think about Circe and what's going to happen in light of the way that gender transformations take place in that chapter. It, I mean, it seems frankly transphobic, but I'm, you know, how does one teach that after recognizing how phobic it is? And I feel like these questions haven't really been worked out yet. And, and so I'm wondering to either of you, to both of you, you know, you're not going to solve this problem for us. I'm not asking you to do that. But what kinds of questions should we be asking of modernism? And how, how do we address the complete gap between the kinds of conversations that are happening on the grounds of young people's lives 
whether it's in social media or in classrooms in college and the way that we teach these old books. I, yeah. I will defer to that and it would take me too long to <laughs> think about that. But yeah, it's an amazing question. There are a number of ways, I think, to comment that question. I mean, I do think that in asking the question, RT, you have already articulated the problem in many respects, which is that we still don't center queerness in the way that we teach and think about literature across many institutions, right? That, that it's still possible for someone to take a class on Ulysses, as I did when I was an undergraduate, and talk about queerness not at all right now that that was a number of years ago it wasn't that many years ago though right and i think that we would find in many classrooms still that uh queerness uh along with um matters of race at the same time are and and i think that goes back to a point shola was making earlier are not centered within discussions of modernism they often exist on the fringes they're a kind of peripheral matter and people fail to attend to how absolutely central they were, even just if central at the level of a prohibition or a kind of taboo in particular ways. I often teach, because we've talked a lot about British modernism uh, so far, I often teach quite a bit of American modernism as well, and in particular, uh, Willa Cather, who um, has a very complicated uh, relationship to queer archives. Uh, but Cather has this story from 1905, a short story called Paul's Case, that is, it, it's inconceivable to me and to most of my students, I think when I teach it now, that the story could ever have been taught um, without focusing on Paul's queerness, his gender nonconformity, his attraction to other men, I mean, many, many aspects to his queerness. But it really wasn't. And this was a story that was taught in the United States for many, many years. It was taught in high schools, for example. Um, and it was all just about the dangers of this overly artistic, daydreaming young boy, right? He's got his head in the clouds, and that causes him to go off the rails. Not just go off the rails, but ultimately throw himself in front of a train. And it just speaks to the degree to which queerness is elided from so much of the way that we think about literature and particularly the canon, much less than other texts that have been left out of the canon. And it gets us to think critically, at least, and this is the last I'll say on this, about the relationship between what is ignored in the canon and what has been ignored outside of the canon, right? That's right. Shola, can I ask you to speak a little bit more about your interest in ornamentality? Because when I hear that term, I think of, in some ways, an an the antithetical concept to that muscular modernism that came up earlier. And there probably is an encrypted relationship between ornamentality and primitivism, which was, again, something that many modernists engaged in, in, in the way that they appropriated the work of other races and cultures. Um, and so I'm, I'm just curious what you're doing with ornamentality and how you're using it in your, in your current work. Mm, it's a really, it's a really tricky question to answer 
whenever whenever I'm asked around ornament, um, just because it's it is such such a vast vast arena, um, I guess. So, you know, it appears in though it's mentioned in though as this historically, you know, by one of the characters as this historically denigrated uh, site. You know, it's always lesser than fine arts, you know, as Kant says, and it's barbaric, as I think Hegel says, and it's obviously criminal, as Adolf Luz says. And whenever these things are said, they are, ornament is characterized as this effete, uh, effeminate, epicene, uh, racialized figure um or just like one of those but sometimes all of all, more often than not all of the above and all and and also yes this idea of like super super colonial ideas of the primitive are written into it um and that's intrigued me for a really long time um and then obviously there's this other side of it which is related to this which, which well it's not it's, it's not another side it's the same side which is this the idea you know ornament always exceeding it's it's a thing of superfluous excrescencies it's a thing of too muchness and at the same time it's too hollow it's cosmeticness means that it's considered not enough it's valueless um and within all of that there's obviously the idea of the that make you know ornament then being a historical site which has been available to people to whom other forms aren't available um is frivolity is exactly where it's like maybe transgressiveness lies um but then also there's that the idea of not even want of like just enjoying it for this you know, ornament for ornament's sake like the question of uh yeah like kind of instrument sort of instrumentalizing it you know after realizing that it's frivolity has been this really kind of exquisite wonderful place in which like various forms of knowledge and and hope and sense and and sensory uh living can um exist um to then kind of to, to instrumentalize that you know like almost which it, like i'm doing now by talking about it as like a useful site um it's kind of like what i've been thinking around at the moment um but and a lot of my thoughts about on, ornament you know which really derived in in material material ornament in objects and then moved a little bit towards you know, ornament in literature, you know, the ornamentality of literature or the decorative mode, um, which obviously, you know, like maybe the most available, like sort of quickly available to my mind at the moment, uh, like thing you could link it to is is what Susan Sontag calls stylization, which was also, which is also what she calls camp, right? And then like to, but so like, and then it's, and then it's gone like a sort of sideways even more into this idea of like ornamentality as a way of being. So, you know, at the moment I'm, I'm really fascinated by um, Doris Payne, Diamond Dor Doris, who's, who's a jewel thief. I think she's now in her eighties or maybe nineties uh, now, but, you know, she started stealing diamonds in the seventies in, I think she's from, I think she's from West Virginia, but I'm not hundred percent sure, but, you know, her life was informed by, uh, mining and by the atrocities of mining and her stealing which arose out of this need it's a method you know method of a, a means of survival and of of looking after her mother um 
her stealing of diamonds is also compacted by this by this political rage against sort of all kind of mining industries, diamond gold, diamond gold and coal. Um, and I've been I've been thinking about the way that the way in which like alongside this need came this other need, which was how she actually steals these diamonds, these ornaments, right? Um, which is through ornamentality. She takes such pleasure in describing the kind of like slights of hands and the kind of like strange sort of sparkling insinuations that she conjures up when she's in the, when she's in Tiffany's, when she's stealing in Monaco before, you know, going into a hotel and having a lavish time and then booking a flight out of the country. Um, and also in the way that she's still stealing to this day um, and kind of wrapping in her own sort of myth of ornament, on, of being an ornamental being into kind of maybe getting slightly shorter prison times now and getting out and really, <laughs> so there's like this performance of ornamentality, which, which really fascinates me, which is to do with artifice and, and self-making and, and, and the managing of your own identity, which you could obviously relate to like Glissant maybe, or to, um, to, 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 to various uh, theorists of, of, of black sensuousness, of black sensory life. Um, there's this sort of two-way, there's this two-way, uh, two-way stream. Sorry, for, sorry for mixing so many metaphors. Two-way, two, a two-way stream um, of ornament, which is one that it's that it's of ornamental living. One that it's this meth, it's this really self. You can self-perpetuate pleasure just by doing it, but also it is this historical um, method of survival as well. I think I have just uh, one more question, uh, which uh, is, uh, I believe, a, a standard question uh, for this podcast, uh, Shola, which is- but Now I feel uh, embarrassed by the term standard, so. <laughs> not standard, sorry. Um, standard in its exquisiteness. Yes. <laughs> um, which is, uh, Shola, if you could snap your fingers and possess some new talent, what would it be? And why that talent? My goodness, um, I okay within sort of the earthly worlds, <laughs> so the place we're talking. Um, oh, I don't know. I think maybe it would just be like being able to play the piano um, because that was something I wanted to do, and I tried to teach myself when I was young, and then um, it just wasn't so sort of easy to to um, to pursue, I guess, as a thing. Um, but then maybe that means that it wasn't, I think actually I just love to be a really good singer. <laughs> <laughs> like that with like my, my ego would enjoy that in so many ways as well. <laughs> what I about this? The first answer was almost like the prepared answer and then this, the effusive answer came out. You know, but I want us to be a singer. <laughs> a really good one. Yes. Well, thank you both for uh, joining us today and for talking so scintillatingly about modernism. It's a topic close to my heart. Um, so as we approach the end of another novel dialogue, we'd like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, Public Books for its partnership, and acknowledge support from Brandeis University and Duke University. 
Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern and designer. Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. And James Draney, James Draney is our blog editor. Look out for upcoming episodes with Chang Ray Lee, Ruth Ozeki, and Colm Toybean. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.